Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 9.35 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It's the 25th of October, 2022. This is episode 635 of Bitcoin. And let's just check in on Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria occasionally cognizant because they're apparently they're targeting crypto's revolving door. Yes, sir. We're going to get right into it today. Al's key brings it to us from Decrypt. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and New York Rep. Alexandria, occasionally cognizant, have asked regulators to clarify their rules around ex-employees seeking jobs in the crypto industry. The letters, published by news site Punchbowl, (laughs) were sent to the heads of seven agencies, including the two main regulators with responsibility for crypto, the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodities Future Trading Commission. The lawmakers asked how long individuals are barred from taking a role in an industry with which they interacted while working in their regulatory positions, as well as what other safeguards are in place to protect against conflicts of interest. Ladies and gentlemen, if you know me, you know what I'm about to say, but I'm going to wait until the end of the article. They say that the crypto sector has rapidly escalated its lobbying efforts in recent months. Oh my. Citing reports compiled by advocacy group Public Citizen and watchdog group Tech Transparency Project. Quote, as part of this influence campaign, crypto firms have hired hundreds of ex-government officials, reads the letter, which was also signed by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island, as well as Rep. Jesus G. Chewy Garcia from Illinois and Rashida Tlaib from Michigan. Quote, we have long been aware of the revolving door in other sectors of the economy, from big tech to the defense industry to other parts of the financial services sector, and we're concerned that the crypto revolving door risks corrupting the policymaking process and undermining the public's trust in our financial regulators. End quote. Senator Warren has been an outspoken critic of the crypto industry earlier this month. She led another group of lawmakers in a request for information about the energy usage of Bitcoin mining in the state of Texas, which is none of her fucking business. Occasionally Cognizant, meanwhile, has said she does not believe that members of Congress should hold or trade crypto or any other financial assets to avoid conflicts of interest. Might want to talk to, um, oh, who's that now? Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Anyway, the upcoming midterms have also provided an opportunity for crypto executives to get involved in the campaigns. Coinbase even recently added a feature to let users check with which politicians are crypto friendly in the run up for the vote. But the industry has also faced opposition from both politicians and others in the technology sector. In June, uh, 26 tech experts signed a letter urging lawmakers to take a skeptical approach to crypto advocates claims whatever. All right. So you know where this is going. How come they haven't asked these questions about the FDA, the USDA, the FBI, any number of security firms. And when I mean security firms, I'm talking about the guys that send, you know, armed contractors. And I've got that in quotes, uh, which are like ex special forces to do their bidding in places like Guatemala, Iran, Iraq, you know, any, in anything that we've touched as the United States, anything that we've touched, right? So the security contractors, that's a whole other ball of wax. But what I want to focus on is the USDA and the FDA and the revolving door policy that has been in place for decades. Now, it's not, if you don't know, this may surprise you. I, I don't know, but... Directors of the FDA 
routinely take very high administrative positions and C-suite positions at places like Bear Crop Sciences and what used to be Monsanto before Bear Crop Sciences bought them out. You see how that works? So you've got the FDA who is very knowledgeable in the regulation process of the United States government going over to the very companies of which they used to regulate. The same is true for the USDA, right? This is not hyperbole. It's not tinfoil hattery. This is the God's honest truth. And yet nobody in government wrote a letter that I can remember of them being a little peeved that FDA and USDA officials routinely swap positions with C-suite individuals. You know, the C-suite individuals go over to the FDA. So the company that the FDA regulates is hiring somebody from the very upper echelons of that company that they regulate. That's a conflict of interest. Nobody seems to care about that. And this has everything to do with our food and it has everything to do with our agriculture and it has everything to do with our medications and the way that doctors are regulated. It's just... And then you wonder why nobody blinks an eye that Pfizer is pretty much the only advertiser left for mainstream media news. This is how that happens. But nobody seems to be, you know, concerned. You know, Elizabeth Warren doesn't seem to be very concerned about the revolving door policies between FDA, USDA, and those companies of which they regulate. You know, the medical complex is, is just as... They also get people from the FDA to come work for them in the upper echelons of their C-suites. And they send people over to the FDA to work for them. It's a very incestuous relationship, also known as, I hate to say it, but fascism. That's the very definition of fascism. Government working with private industry to help each other do whatever it is that they do, that's pretty much fascism. It's not Trump. It's, that's not fascism. It's fascism if Trump was, you know, and he may have, I don't know, but if he used any amount of government influence or gov- his power in government to benefit, you know, Trump industries, then that's technically fascism because you got a private sector industry or, or a pri- you know, uh, somebody, a company in the private sector teaming up with government. That's just fascism. That's what happened in Mussolini's Italy and Nazi Germany. And it was just, that was where real fascism happens. But Elizabeth Warren and, you know, AOC don't seem to give a shit about anything but crypto at this point. Why? Because that's where all of the, what remains of the power of the U.S. government and any fiat government, for that matter, rest in the currency that they provide the people and the rest of the world. So happens the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency, so everybody depends on it. The dollar is the best-looking horse in the glue factory. Now, Cash App. 40 million Cash App users can now send and receive Bitcoin Lightning payments. They've unlocked it, I guess, for the masses. Sean Amick tells us more from Bitcoin Magazine. Cash App users can now send and receive Bitcoin payments instantly via the Lightning Network, per an announcement from the company's product lead, Michael Rahani. The process for transacting in Bitcoin through Cash App is simple. First, the user goes to the app, opens the money tab, selects Bitcoin, and then a QR code or link will be generated allowing users to transact with other Lightning-enabled wallets. Currently, the feature is available across all the United States except for New York. (laughs) I wonder why. Thus, as long as users are interacting with other Lightning wallets, Cash App users can choose to send or receive uh, Bitcoin from the app in the U.S. per statement from Rahani. In order to use the new functionality, users are required to update to the latest version of the app, which is supported on both Apple iOS and Android mobile devices. Moreover, Cash App boasts a user base of over 40 million people. This means 40 million users can now settle instant back and forth payments in BTC, all by integrating with the Lightning Network. This past February, Cash App announced its initial integration with the Lightning Network. However, this functionality only allowed users to send BTC to other Lightning wallets. Today's announcement allows users to also receive BTC. 
The company's initial announcement was followed up with the feature known as pay me in Bitcoin, which allowed cash app users to convert their paychecks into BTC. So finally, we've got the ability to send and receive in our cash app apps, uh, lightning payments. So make sure if you're using cash app, and I know a lot of, I know a lot of you guys are like, yeah, I'm not just, I'm just not going to do it. I get it. I really do. But for new users, it, this is always the argument. I, the, the argument comes back again and again and again and again. And it's always A versus B, right? It's custodial versus non-custodial. I choose to hold the vast majority of my Bitcoin in a non-custodial way. I do use Cash App. I do use Strike. I have drained my blue wallet, but you know, <clears throat> I just wanted to get it out of there because I hadn't been using blue wallet in a while. I, I don't see anything wrong unless you're keeping the vast majority of your wealth custodially, right? If you're just entering Bitcoin and you've got like a hundred bucks and you just want to figure it out, use cash app or go use strike or something like that. It's okay. It's not going to kill anybody. But if you, if you stay in and you get sucked down the rabbit hole, like is pretty much easy to do once you get anywhere close to the orbit of Bitcoin, then you will learn about how to self-custody. And if you know how to do it and you still refuse to do it, that's when I start having kind of a problem with it because you're very, very close to the edge on having all of your wealth taken away. But also, if, if all of the wealth that you own in Bitcoin is just a fraction of a percent of your total net worth, I also don't worry that much about it because that's not the point at which you're sucked down the rabbit hole. All of a sudden, you know, you start buying it and then you realize that, you know, what was sub 1% of your wealth that you stashed in Bitcoin now is 10% of your net worth and you just waited a couple of years. At that point, that's really, really, really when you need to have already started feeling comfortable with self-custody and make sure that the vast majority of whatever it is, the whatever it is that your wealth in Bitcoin, get it off. But I have a problem berating people coming into the space and they just want to do a hundred bucks. They just want to figure out how to use this stuff in the lightest touch you know, Bitcoin light way that you possibly can. I don't want to berate them. So I, I try to stand off of that. But if somebody's been in for a couple of years, man, at that point, you, you, you really do need to change your ways. Distressed, Bitcoin mining assets are becoming popular investments. Zach Vol tells us more from Bitcoin Magazine. Bitcoin continues trading well off of its record highs as the latest bear market continues. Thanks to a variety of macroeconomic shocks and strains, Bitcoin miners are especially feeling pain uh, of a depressed market with hash rate climbing and hash price dropping. Against the backdrop of doom and gloom, a growing cohort of investors are pooling capital with the intent of lending to or investing in distressed mining teams. Yes, we are, we are here now. Fresh capital injections may be just the solution to help struggling companies survive the bear market, but for others, simply throwing money at a failing venture fixes nothing. This article explores growing investor interest in distressed mining assets and discusses possible outcomes for these investments. A bear market status quo. It's no secret that the bear market has progressively worsened for Bitcoin mining companies, even though Bitcoin has traded in the range of around $20,000 for the past several months. Some Bitcoin public mining teams are facing delisting. Others are engaged in lawsuits. Some miners are selling hardware to strengthen their balance sheets, and a few are liquidating some of their reserves, selling more Bitcoin than they mine each month. While some mining teams are suffering the throes of a bear market, a growing cohort of investors see opportunity. Some of these investors are brand new to the mining industry. For example, Maple Finance, a decentralized finance team primarily focused on, for God's sakes, on Ethereum and Solana, according to its website, and launched a $300 million fully collateralized lending pool targeting struggling Bitcoin miners who need more capital. Peter Thiel also recently led a $3.7 million seed round for Block Green, a new lending protocol also targeting miners who need access to more capital. Oh God, lending pools. Did we learn nothing? 
<laughs> Some of the investors accumulating funds to target the mining industry are substantially more experienced. Binance announced a $500 million fund to support distressed Bitcoin mining teams. This monstrous crypto conglomerate currently operates the world's fourth largest Bitcoin mining pool in addition to the world's largest exchange platform. Jihan Wu, the Bitcoin tycoon who co-founded Bitmain, also announced plans for a $250 million fund to buy distressed mining assets. Notably absent from the list of crypto moguls eyeing the mining sector is FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried. On Twitter, SBF put to rest speculation that he and his team were interested in mining investments by saying they aren't really looking into the space. But he is reportedly considering bidding on bankrupt Celsius Network's assets, which could include a now-bankrupt Bitcoin mining unit that the treble company poured roughly $500 million into. In total, over $1 billion from these public announcements alone is sitting on the sidelines waiting to lend or invest in distressed mining operations. Beyond these funds, other investors are privately clamoring for cheap mining investments. According to Foundry, the industry's largest full-spectrum mining service provider, they are bombarded with inquiries every week from interested buyers. Quote, we are fielding several calls a week from institutional investors looking to buy distressed mining assets, the company said. Not everyone is rushing to throw money at mining, however. For many financial service providers watching the space, the general consensus is that the markets fundamentally changed. Against the endearing uncertainty in the global economy and harsh macroeconomic headwinds fueled by record inflation in almost every major economy, risks for jumping into Bitcoin mining remain high. This is likely one reason why CEOs of major banks have clearly said they do not plan to finance mining operations. But the long-term upside for mining is undeniable. In fact, so long as Bitcoin itself has long-term upside potential, the mining sector does as well. This is par partially why even traditional investment banking analysts have publicly noted multiple times over the past year that mining investments are becoming more attractive to them as the bear market continues. Multiple mining companies are already moving to claim some of these opportunities through mergers, acquisitions, and even public listings. Crusoe Energy, one of the industry's leading teams using flare gas to power Bitcoin mining, recently acquired Great American Mining, which also uses stranded oil and gas to mine Bitcoin. Actually, they don't use stranded oil, guys. Uh, that's not true. It's just natural gas. You you have to refine oil. I won't get into it. CleanSpark also acquired an 80 megawatt turnkey mining site from Mawson. Rhodium announced its plans to go public via a reverse merger with a $1.7 billion valuation. And PrimeBlock, another mining company, announced plans to go public via a $1.25 billion special purpose acquisition company merger. Even though a bear market presents far better opportunities to start mining compared to the hype of a bull market, the ugly truth for many new mining investors is that more money will not fix most problems. Throwing money at a troubled mining operation is no panacea, and weak balance sheets are often a symptom of deeper problems, which makes the path from distressed to solvent far from easy. In a bull market, mistakes are easy to overlook, but also easy to rem remedy because the market is much more forgiving. In a bear market, mistakes are exponentially more expensive and difficult to undo. For novice investors seeking their first exposure to the mining industry, investing in distressed mining assets could present some tough lessons on how the mining industry works and why these companies are struggling in the first place. But smart investors will no doubt learn quickly. The business of Bitcoin mining has only gotten more competitive and less profitable per unit of hash rate with every passing year. Whether or not these financers salivating over investing in mining have what it takes to win will be an exciting question to answer as the bear market continues. Okay, so that's the end of the article. Mining is looking really rough right now, as it should. <clears throat> First of all, mining always looks rough in a bear market. But what compounded this one for the miners is that there was so much leverage Leverage will kill you. Yes, if, if used the right way, you can move mountains with a stick and a rock. I get it, okay? But I didn't see a whole lot of very prudent, leveraged investing. Not, not much. I saw people just throwing cash around in huge bags, and they were just leveraged 10x, 100x on 
everything that you could be leveraged on. And then when Terra happened, and we saw it, we saw it happening. We saw the accumulation building. That's why I was reporting on it. But we saw the accumulation over months. And they were huge buys. And I was like, going, man, something doesn't feel right. I didn't I couldn't put my finger on it at the time, but I damn sure know what the hell I was thinking about now. So, boys and girls, the mining space right now is probably something that you want to look at, but not really not really spend a shit ton of money on in investing, right? So just, but watch it. Mining is going to turn around at one point or another. What I'm looking for this time is some kind of maturity, some kind of prudence, some kind of way that these companies will look and say, hey, man, we're making a shit ton of money again, finally. You know, the bear market's over. We're in a bull market. Uh, let's let's go get a loan. Say no. Say no. Or do whatever it is that you have to do to make sure that you're valuing your company against Bitcoin and against the U.S. dollar instead of just looking at Bitcoin as a way to convert it to U.S. dollar only. That's where I think the real mistakes were made is that none of the investments were really, really looked at hard as to the numbers and what happens to, you know, like did anybody make any models whatsoever as to hash price, hash rate, uh, all the investments that were being done versus the Bitcoin price versus what was going on with the dollar against every other macroeconomic market? No, I don't think so. I don't think those, I don't think a model can or I don't think a model has been made because that's a difficult model. I mean, to be honest, that's a lot of variables to keep track of. Yet, if you want to play this game, that's probably the amount of variables you're going to have to track every single day from now on. Now, speaking of Terra, key witness called to testify at Terra parliamentary inquiry is a no-show. Braden Lindre. I guess, <laughs> uh, Cointelegraph, the CEO of venture capital firm Hashed and early Terra investor Kim Soo-Joon has cited extreme stress following the Terra crash as the reason for his no-show at South Korea's National Assembly's Political Affairs Committee. Uh, he was one of six people selected to take part in the South Korean parliament's latest inquiry to better understand the events that led to the infamous $40 billion wipeout of Terra's cryptocurrencies, according to an October 24th article from the Korea Economic Daily. According to a letter from Soo-Joon, he suffered severe mental harm from the sudden <laughs> collapse of LUNC and the depegging of its associated algorithmic stablecoin, Terra USD. Quote, since the Terra Luna crash occurred, I've been suffering from anxiety disorder and panic disorder due to extreme mental stress. End quote. In addition to the letter submitted to the National Assembly, he attached an expert opinion and medical certificate which stated that he'd been hospitalized and received psychiatric treatment since July 29th. Medication and counseling treatment were also said to have worsened his anxiety, who is in absolute need of emotional stability at this time. What about the people you ripped off? Whatever. Uh, a few months after the infamous uh, Luna Classic collapse, Si Jun disclosed that Hashed had suffered a $3.6 billion loss from its peak value in late April, having owed 30 million LUNC tokens, according to an August interview with Bloomberg. Not owed owned 30 million LUNC tokens. Earlier this month, the chairman of the South Korean exchange Bitthumb, Lee Jung-hoon, also failed to attend the parliamentary hearing on October the 6th, citing a panic disorder as the reason for his no-show. There's a lot of people with panic disorders. Other witnesses called in various stages of the inquiry include Bitthumb major shareholder Kang Jeonhyun, CEO of Dunamu, which runs South Korea's largest crypto exchange Upbit, Lee Suk-woo, Chai Holdco, director Shin Hyun Sung, and Terraform Labs co-founder Daniel Shin. Ooh, God, it's a mouthful. Terra CEO and co-founder Du Quan was not listed to be inquired by Korea's Political Affairs Committee as law enforcement units throughout the globe continue to try tracking where his whereabouts. 
because nobody knows where he is. Duquan, totally. What a rug pull, man. I mean, honestly, golf clap. Oh, it was so good. Except for the fact that he destroyed, you know, many, many tens of thousands of people's financial futures in so doing. Boys and girls don't get into shit coinery because you're going to end up with a panic anxiety disorder, the likes of which you've never think you've never seen before. Now on to China, Chinese intelligence officers bribe an FBI agent with $61,000 in Bitcoin, Bitcoin magazines, Sean Amick Two intelligence officers from the People's Republic of China attempted to bribe a U.S. intelligence agent with $61,000 in Bitcoin. Quote, today's complaint underscores the unrelenting efforts of the PRC government to undermine the rule of law, stated United States Attorney Breon Peace. Quote, as alleged, the case involves an effort by PRC intelligence officers to obstruct an ongoing criminal prosecution by making bribes to obtain files from U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York and sharing them with a global telecommunications company that is charged, uh, that is a charged defendant in an ongoing prosecution. Peace continued. Gu Chun He, also known as Dong He and Jackie He and Zhang Wang, also known as Zen Wang. My God, the aliases here. He allegedly conspired to steal files and other relevant information related to the ongoing federal criminal investigation and prosecution of a global telecommunications company. Quote, far more than an effort to collect information or intelligence, the actions of the PRC intelligence officers charged in this case must be called out for what they are an extraordinary intervention by agents of a foreign government to interfere with the integrity of the United States criminal justice system, compromise a United States government employee, and obstruct the enforcement of U.S. law to benefit a PRC-based commercial enterprise, stated Assistant Attorney General for National Security Matthew Olson. Olson went on to explain that the Justice Department would not abide by the foreign intervention of U.S. criminal prosecutions, nor the interference of fair justice. The bribe was also, or rather, the bribe was allegedly made to a double agent belonging to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Thus, Go Chu Hu He faces up to 60 years in prison and found guilty, while Wang faces 20 years. <laughs> you know, why? The China, they banned, they banned Bitcoin, but they see the utility. Now, if, if your drug dealer doesn't take your money, then it's not money. If your stripper doesn't take your money, it's not money. If your hooker doesn't take your money, it's not money. If your bartender doesn't take your money, then what you're giving the bartender is not money. China knows Bitcoin is money at the very highest levels. Because this kind of intervention, this isn't like, this isn't like rogue shit going on with China. They, I mean, Z knew about this. He, he's not an idiot. Global telecommunications is a huge, oh, strategic win for whoever has the most chunk of global telecommunications. Z knew. If he didn't authorize it directly, he sure as shit didn't say anything about it, but he knew. So, yes, China understands Bitcoin. China understands the value proposition of Bitcoin very well. Do not be fooled and do not think that they aren't willing to use BTC in a heartbeat. Now, before we do the numbers, let's do boostograms. Okay, I'm going to start. Uh, Pitar, I'm going to get to you in a sec, but let's do the other ones first for a reason. Letter 6173, Striper Boost, finally finished The Mandibles, and it's a great book. I don't know. I haven't. I, I need to pick it up. I, I I honestly do, but I read too many books about soil right now. Uh, Fatoshi five thousand sat says from on POW by Rule Duke. As much as you may want there to be less energy intensive ways to achieve censorship resistant value transfer over a communications channel afforded by Nakamoto consensus, this can never be guaranteed with algorithms alone. By analogy, a structure on Earth simply cannot support itself from the inside alone. Proof of work anchors the digital world to the physical world. Damn skippy it does. 
Shark the Lion, 5,000 sats. Here's enough sats for five mortgage payments in 2030. <laughs> yes, absolutely, dude. <coughs> uh, Lumberjack Hoddle. Hey, my friend, this is with 400 Satoshis. Love your butcher shop idea. We never miss a show from all the Lumberjacks that I've got listening. We thank you. Well, thank you for being Lumberjacks too, by the way, because that's some hard ass work. And the amount, the amount of, log, of, of logging trucks that I see in Eastern Washington and Western Idaho, that's, that's a lot of logging. And there's a lot of lumber yards around here, man. I mean, well, well sorry, lumber mills. A lot of them. I've, I've never seen this much stacked wood. And I'm talking like just whole tree trunks. <laughs> just in huge, huge hundred foot, not a shit you not, a hundred foot stacks of, of logs with huge sprinklers, just making sure that they're wet all the time. I guess that's, you know, fire hazard kind of thing. Probably has something to do with curing wood also. I don't know, but I mean, these never seen anything like it. So thank you to all the lumberjacks out there <clears throat> for doing what you do. I know that you guys get a lot of shit, but I also know that if you don't thin out a forest, uh, that forest will actually die. Also, most of the lumber companies are actually replanting their plantations with, you know, trees on the backside and they'll go harvest them in another 20, 40, you know, 20 to 30 to 40 years, right? They don't want to run out of wood either. That's just, you know, that's, I think that's really old thinking, but moving on. Uh, Jim Leahy with 30, 333 sats, your gift doing something positive for the Bitcoin community and getting people like myself more and more fired up to change the world. Keep rocking that shit. Thank you, brother. I will. And D.D. Uh, Bresnahan with 100 Satoshis. Now, thank you to all you guys. Pitar, winner of the day, 50,000 Satoshis. He says 50K to hear the Ramaswamy story. Okay, I'm going to give you a relatively short version. Back in the day, when I was out of college, me and a buddy of mine decided that we were going to do entrepreneurial shit. We opened up a company called Sertigen. What we did was two things. We were a genetic sequencing house, so you could send us your DNA and we would sequence it. And the other thing we did was something called synthetic gene construction. How now what that means is like somebody sends us like an email with just, you know, the the sequence of the DNA that they want and it's just in text. That's what we get. A C G T A A A. And from that, we build or we used to build whole DNA structures um, that conformed directly to what it is that they wanted. Now the problem was is that neither me or my buddy had PhDs in molecular biology. I had a bachelor, I have a bachelor's degree in cell and molecular biology, but not a PhD. And we were always, you know, I, we were under the same auspices as everybody else. Apparently we were fooled into believing that you really needed a PhD. So we, he, my business partner tags a guy that he used to work with who does have a PhD in molecular biology. And they were working together at a similar shop. He tagged him to come over and, and be our quote unquote PhD. And this guy turned out to be, oh my God, I don't even know really how to describe it. But in the brief period of time that he, like he stayed with us for about a year and a half before we fired his ass, which I'll get to in a sec, he got into a major car wreck that damn near killed him. And six months after that, he divorced his wife who also was working for us. Yes, I know. It's like, we made all the mistakes. We, we made all the mistakes, right? But this guy, he was, here's the, thing about, here's the thing about India and the Indian caste system. When somebody really embraces that caste system, then if you, like for instance, if, if in India, if the owner of the car, right, gets to drive the car and there's two other passengers, one owns a car and the other one does not own a car, the person that owns a car gets to sit in the front seat. And the person that doesn't own a car gets to sit in the back seat. You're broadcasting all the time your position in society, in a caste system. And Ramaswamy was no fucking different. 
all the time. He was doing the things and saying all the things that made, he was trying to assert his PhD-ness over us, right? But we are the owners of the company. We're the ones taking all the risk. We're the ones with all the money on the line. I mean, screaming matches were happening on the floor of the lab almost weekly with this guy until the fateful day when he called us in on a Sunday to see if he could talk about what was going on. And he gave us an ultimatum. He wanted 51% of the company. Now, <laughs> one of the things that Ramaswamy didn't understand was that we had loans out against the capital that we took out so that we could buy the equipment, do refurbishing of the building and all that kind of stuff. When we told him, sure, you can have 51% of the company when you pony up 51% of what's owed on the loans. And he never understood that. He didn't get it. This is, I, this was one of my first captures of one of the things that's going on right now is that everybody just trust their doctor. Everybody just trust the PhDs. Everybody just trust your fucking politicians. No, don't ever trust. This guy couldn't understand a simple financial fact of our situation. There was no company. There were loans that a company owed. And if you wanted to own that company, then you were taking, you had to take on that debt by law. I can't assign 51% of a company that I'm part owner in when it's all debt financing. That's how bad it was. And then right then, my business partner looked him in the face and said, you're a terrorist. Put your keys on the desk and get the fuck out of my sight. And that was the last time we saw our PhD. <laughs> And he, I mean, the guy, uh, it was, yeah, it was bad. So that's, that's the short, short version of the Ramaswamy story. Pitar, hope you enjoyed it. It was well, I hope it was well worth 50,000 Satoshis. Thank you, my brother. Now it's time we run the numbers. CNBC futures and commodities. West Texas Intermediate up 0.7% to $85.17 a barrel. Uh, Britain North Sea is up a quarter of a percent, $93.50 a barrel. Natural gas making the biggest move today, 7.37% to the upside, uh, $5.58 per thousand on natural gas. And I want to pause here in a second and talk more about natural gas. Gasoline itself, 4.6% to the upside. Uh-oh, $2.85 a gallon. Now, natural gas. I've been asking myself, what the hell was going on with natural gas prices? We were at like $9.50 or something, which is, you know, something I had never seen before. But this was all going on when the pipelines were being blown up and, you know, or right before all that was being blown up and Ukraine, you know, and Russia is like, you know, flaring up and, and natural gas prices just started soaring. I, I get it. <clears throat> what I didn't get was this latest crash because you've got Europe that is go like, they're just, it's all. Last I heard, there was a whole bunch of liquefied natural gas boats basically off the coast of, off the coasts of Europe and, and UK and stuff like that. And they're going to have a hard winter. It's going to suck and people are going to die. How many? I don't know, but it's probably not going to be it's probably not going to be a low number. So I kind of figured that they'd be stockpiling natural gas, whether it's liquefied, well, it's the only way you can stockpile natural gas is to liquefy it, or find some other sources of natural gas. And I kind of expected the prices to just, you know, stabilize at like seven bucks because it was going to be pricey because it's in demand. We're coming into winter. And yet the price started crashing. Why? Because nobody can buy it. Those ships that I was talking about, the LNG ships, the liquefied natural gas ships, they're basically holding storage. They're acting as storage tanks. They're not able to deliver the goods. There's, they never really built a whole lot of liquefied natural gas terminals over in Europe, so they can't offload it. So they can't you know, float back to the United States and get more, which means that our natural gas providers and producers can't sell it. 
it's an artificial price depression. Eh, yeah, welcome to macroeconomics, I guess. I mean, I didn't know this shit before. This is why I love Bitcoin, because I learn shit all the time. <clears throat> There's two ways this works. I have a ton of product and other people come online and they put more product and people want it at exactly the same rate, the price goes down, supply and demand. When things are scarce and you can't get it, then the price goes up because of supply and demand. This one is sort of like an invert of that, right? It's, I want it, God knows I need it, but I don't have the infrastructure to put it anywhere until I use it. Therefore, I can't buy any, even though I want it and I know I'm going to need it. I can't, I can't, I don't have any room to store it. And that pushes the price down because they're not, since they're not buying it, it acts like, eh, we don't really care about your product. Yeah, there's plenty of it around. It, it does the same thing. So that's why natural gas prices were going down. Now I don't know why they're going up. I'm so confused all the time. Metals are mixed. Gold up 0.19%. Silver is up 0.7%. Platinum losing 0.7% of the downside. Copper's down a full point. Palladium is down two and a quarter points. Uh, let's see. Dow is up 0.61%. S&P up just over 1%. Na uh, NASDAQ up 1.3%. And the S&P mini is up 2%. Yay. What's going on with Bitcoin? $19,746. And that's after 787,838 BTC have passed around the horn with an average transaction value of 3.18 BTC, a median transaction value of 0.023 BTC or 459 bucks. Block times are still high, 10 minutes and 50 seconds. Uh, we have 0.09 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis and 12 and a quarter BTC overall in the last 24 hours. A 2.97% drop in hash rate and we are still at 251.7 exahashes per second. Your shitcoin indicator has risen just a tad. 6.1 United States pennies is what the going rate for Dogecoin is. Now, oh God, I just screwed up. I need to, I, I accidentally closed a tab. Hold on. I need to get uh, my Clark Moody dashboard up. Let's go. LFG. 28,150 transactions are waiting on 14 blocks to clear. It's just a little congestion going on. We have a $383.7 billion market cap, which is now 3.5% of gold's market cap. And you can now get over 12 ounces of gold, 12.1 ounces of gold to be exact with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,188,904.67 of and five, shit, 5,119 and a half Bitcoin are in the Lightning Network, guys. $102.3 million valuation being run over 16,897 nodes with 81,411 payment channels and 67.6% .6 of all of it is being run over Tor. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the news that you can use. Bitcoin Magazine, Kevin Murko starts us off with this piece. Now, you're going to howl, but we got to go through this. If we're going to fix regulation, we need to be part of the conversation. Oh, I can feel this one just bubbling up already. On October the 12th, 2022, I was honored to speak at Bitcoin Amsterdam's panel session titled FATF and the threat to Bitcoin privacy. With my fellow speakers, we dove into the evolving role of the Financial Action Task Force, or FATF, and its relationship to Bitcoin. It's so important that we understand both sides of the argument if we are to create a world where both the ideological and the practical implementation of Bitcoin will match the original intentions outlined in the now famous white paper. As an overview, the FATF was created in 1989 by the G7 to gather data on money laundering almost 20 years prior to the birth of Bitcoin. As time went on, the FATF evolved into a policing body tackling all illicit money movements. During this time frame, Bitcoin came into creation and moved into the mainstream with the launch of regulated exchanges and wallets. 
The coexistence of the FATF and Bitcoin throws up one of the most recurrent and contentious debates around cryptocurrencies, whether they should be regulated. The conference brought together less than popular arguments for working with legislatures and regulators with those of a technologist detailing the solutions evolving to solve regulatory issues and welcomed insights from ideologues arguing that the regulation of cryptocurrency service providers goes against its core concept of sovereign currency and privacy. Seeing such diversity of opinions in one room made me reflect on the evolution of Bitcoin conferences themselves. I myself have been on stages and at meetups since the beginning of Bitcoin, and I notice how the dialogue within the sector has expanded. In their nascent days, conferences were all about ideology. Bitcoin was far less monetarily valuable and had very few use cases. So discussions had to be led by the ideology of the change makers looking to better financial markets and give people back their sovereignty when it comes to their money. That's an amazing ideology and it's an ideology that hasn't been lost. But beyond ideology, to get where we are today, Bitcoin and the Bitcoin network have matured and taken on more use cases. They have become full-fledged platforms and businesses with loyal customer bases. And with this comes an increased duty to the customer and the financial landscape in which they exist. Hosting Bitcoin Amsterdam today at a time when Bitcoin prices are not at an all-time high is an important reminder of the average Bitcoin user's conviction. If Bitcoin was at record value, we'd have unanimous support for the self-sovereignty ide ideology. Many of the people speaking at Bitcoin Amsterdam have not experienced losses recently. They have been in the game for far longer and therefore are still in profit. But most users are not in this position, and the average consumer is still acutely aware of the volatility that comes with the currency. The crypto winter ushered in a consideration of what is preventing the mass global adoption of Bitcoin and how this can be overcome to attract a new wave of Bitcoin users. This dip has prompted discussions of the business, regulatory, and technological side of the digital currency, looking at practical ways to improve these facets. However, Given ideology is so central to Bitcoin, conversations are rarely had without reverting to its key tenets. Sitting on the panel at Bitcoin Amsterdam, I sat in the middle of, of these diverse speakers, literally and figuratively. To me, all stakeholders want the same outcome. We all believe that there should be a choice between using government-controlled currency and centralized payment vehicles and opting for channels that are run by consensus model in which users have self-sovereignty and are able to operate outside of the traditional powerhouses that run the world. In this world, there still needs to be oversight because at the end of the day, nobody wants to see funds move into the hands of illicit violent actors. Well, that depends on, that depends on your, your definition of illicit, right? It's a federal law to, have, to possess marijuana at this time, right? That's illegal. It was legal to chuck Jewish people in fucking ovens. That was legal. It was legal to kill them on the street. It was legal. Tell me more about what's illicit and who's violent. Jesus. My own perspective is that change must start from the inside, not from the outside. Many players in the larger cryptocurrency space and in traditional finance may see the regulator as an obstacle. But we live in a world that requires law and order. And while the regulatory system is flawed, the only way to fix it is from within, having experienced its pain points firsthand. In order to make a convincing case that commands the respect of traditional global finance, I don't want your respect, honestly, the Bitcoin community has to prioritize unity. Nope, 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 I'm gonna read that again. In order to make a convincing case that commands the respect of traditional global finance, the Bitcoin community has to prioritize unity. No, no we don't. Because the traditional global finance machinery that is in place today is the cause of every single misery on this planet. And you want its respect? Are you mad? You want its respect. You want, that's like wanting the respect of, of uh, I don't know, pick a murderer, Pol Pot. That's like wanting Pol Pot's, you know, respect after he killed 40, 20 million, you know, Cambodians or whatever it was. You really want the respect of the global finance system? Screw you, buddy. All market players, be it exchanges, wallet providers, or DeFi products, big or small, need to make their voices heard by engaging with regulators and legislators to educate them directly. 
Having our common end goal in mind, it is far easier to fight from the inside by sitting in one room with a dozen regulators than trying to educate every single person on the planet about the virtues of Bitcoin and drive mass adoption that way. Again, I fully disagree. You're going to be captured if you sit in that room with dozens of regulators. And the best way out is to indeed educate normal people that have normal morals and normal ethics who are wondering why everything around them is on fire. Educate them about Bitcoin. Educate them how to use it. Educate them about, actually start with educating about the financial, the, the global financial, you know, industrial complex at this point and fiat money and then offered them the alternative. But no, sitting in a room with 12 regulators is going to make you the 13th regulator. Jesus, God, for God's sake. Overall, the panel was a great opportunity to share my thoughts and views on the industry as it stands today. Yes, the FATF will continue to do everything it can to combat money laundering and illicit transactions, but if it continues to dictate the rules without the Bitcoin community at the table, the end result will not be what any of us want, ideologically or otherwise. So that's the end of the article. All right, so this time, there's always a disclaimer on Bitcoin Magazine. I generally don't read it. This time, I have to. This is a guest post by Kevin Murko. Opinions expressed are entirely their own and do not necessarily reflect those of BTC Inc. or Bitcoin Magazine. I read this to you so that you know what's going on in the minds of other Bitcoiners. I'm sure this person is a, is a fine individual and if he's got children, I'm sure he's a fine father. I, I don't know. But reading this, it is clear to me how capture occurs. You need to sit in a room with 12 regulators and educate them instead of educating the masses. That's the failure. That's the first failure. That's the only failure, honestly. That's capture. Why would you not want, why, why would you perpetrate a sentence to say that it is better to sit with the enemy than to go out into the masses and educate potential friends. Makes me wonder. But I got to say it, fuck this guy and fuck his idea. Now, British MP Lisa Cameron on Bitcoin and the UK becoming an international crypto hub. Uh, this is probably because Rishi Sunak just got elected and uh, as prime minister. And uh, well, let's just get into it from Joseph Hall and Cointelegraph. The United Kingdom could be warming to Bitcoin and crypto. Taking a time out from Scotland's first major Bitcoin conference, Cointelegraph spoke to Lisa Cameron, a member of parliament who is spending more and more time working with digital assets. She told Cointelegraph, quote, I have spoken to companies who are involved with CBDCs and stablecoins. We've looked at crypto tokens and Bitcoin is obviously part of that sector, end quote. As the Scottish National Party member of parliament for East Kilbridge, Strathaven and Lassenigal, Cameron works in Westminster, Westminster A, metronym for the Parliament of the United Kingdom. She rubs shoulders with the new crypto curious Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Cameron is also the chairperson of the Crypto and Digital Assets All Party Parliamentary Group. The forum discusses the challenges and opportunities relating to the crypto sector and explores the need for future regulation in the sector. Of course you do. While the creation of the APPG would suggest that Bitcoin and crypto might be making it mainstream, the future of money remains a fringe discussion topic in the United Kingdom. Interest in digital assets waxes and wanes with the crypto bear and bull runs. A Royal Mint non-fungible token, an NFT, was recently floated by the then Chancellor, now Prime Minister Sunak, and the Bitcoin and crypto community are increasingly vocal in response to surging inflation rates. However, UK regulators have also cracked the whip on crypto advertisements and queried the creation of a digital assets law. For policymakers in such an environment, Cameron mentioned the importance of education in Parliament. Oh, God, here we go again. Quote, we are on a learning curve and it's just very, very important because the UK government has a policy vision that the UK will become an international hub of cryptocurrencies and digital assets. End quote. 
Speaking from her home country, the Scot told Cointelegraph that the key issue is consumer protection. It's all about looking at regulatory frameworks moving ahead in the United Kingdom. In a nod to treating Bitcoin differently from other cryptocurrencies, Cameron continued, quote, In my understanding and from the session we've had at the Bitcoin conference, you know some of that relates to Bitcoin. Some perhaps not all so greatly because of the decentralized nature of it, end quote. Days after the conference, Cameron took to the stand in Parliament to pitch the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, to discuss the UK's vision of becoming a global crypto hub. Sorry, quote, Chair of the APPG, Dr. Lisa Cameron MP, asked to meet with Chancellor Jeremy Hunt about Her Majesty's Treasury's commitment to regulation and consumer protection and the vast potential of crypto and digital assets in job creation, innovation, and growth. Cameron mentioned her participation at the UK Bitcoin Conference and the Digital Asset Summit as part of her request. Personally, Cameron conceded that she does not hold any crypto personally and joked that she wouldn't become a Bitcoin maximalist anytime soon. Quote, it would skew the report. It could, you know, mean that I'm less objective, end quote. When quizzed on whether she preferred the time spent at the crypto and NFT friendly digital assets summit or the Bitcoin conference in her home turf of Edinburgh, she mentioned, quote, I do have a bit of a leaning towards my hometown. Although having a conference in London and a conference in Scotland's, Scotland's capital is a good thing, they complement each other. Oh, what a, what a non-answer. She, she can't say that she likes Bitcoin. It has to be, it has to be Bitcoin and a whole bunch of shit coins. And all these, it's like they're, if you want to regulate something, then regulate the shit out of the altcoin sector and the shit coins and the ICOs and all that crap, the NFTs, it's just, it's terrible, especially the NFTs. And somebody aside from me also thinks that NFTs are terrible, but I'm in conflict with the following. New Apple rules double down on a 30% NFT tax and geo limit exchanges. Jesse Coughlin from Cointelegraph tells us more about what Apple is up to. Technology heavyweight Apple has clarified its app store rules around non-fungible tokens and cryptocurrency exchanges, marking the first time that it's codified specific rules for NFTs. The new rules confirm how NFT purchases will be taxed. If you didn't get that, I'll read it again. The new rules confirm how NFT purchases will be taxed and what they can and can't be used for, while also clarifying rules around when a crypto exchange app can be listed. Do I need to even go further into this? No, I don't. And do I like NFTs? No, of course not. But Apple's just decided to do a 30% tax. Ooh, that's not good. And also the the story does go on that, that they're not going to allow, they're basically kind of like geo-walling where, where you can go to your exchanges on uh, an Apple or an iOS device. It's just, it's just more of the gorilla in the room swinging its weight around and still nobody gives a shit. This is why you Bitcoin. Yes, I have an Apple iPhone. Yes, I use Cash App. At any given time, I expect Apple to pull Cash App off. However, I, I kind of doubt that's going to happen because Cash App is just so freaking huge. Uh, but this is not the end of companies doing shit like this. They're going, they're going to do rent seeking. All right. So it doesn't end here. Don't ever think it ends here. This could very well creep into them taking a 30% tax on me purchasing Bitcoin through Cash App or Strike. I don't know, but it doesn't, it, it wouldn't phase me one bit if I were to come to find that out. So I guess the advice is buy Bitcoin while you can with fiat while they accept it. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. Dad says jokes. Have you ever tried eating a clock? It's really time consuming, especially if you go for seconds.
Yes, sirree. If you want to support the show, Podcasting 2.0 is the way to go. It's newpodcastingapp.org is what I was getting at. Uh, let me just get over there. I should have set this up, but eh, podcastingapp.org. Let's see what we got here. Oh, for God's, hold on. Well, that totally failed on me. I'm in, I've ended up at podcastindex.org forward slash apps. And there's all kinds of podcast apps that are podcasting 2.0 enabled, like JustCast, Podverse, Castapod, Podcast Addict. I mean, it, the list just goes on and on. It's actually really, really impressive how many of these companies are, are using podcast 2.0 enabled technology. But that's a value for value play. And if you find that this show gives you any kind of value at all, you know, I just would ask that that you return that value in the form of actual real money, you know, Satoshis, which stream directly to my lightning node. And you can do that by either streaming this episode live and just throwing me five, 10 sats a minute. Uh, some people do it one on, on fountain. I think the minimum is five sats a minute that you can do. How do I know that? Maybe I'm a cheapskate. No, 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 that's not exactly true. I do do my part for the podcasting 2.0 uh, ecosystem by uh, turning on my ability to stream people, val my value, because I think that what they offer me is valuable as well. And I hope that I'm able to do the same. So if you want to support the show, podcasting 2.0 and the fountain app is my favorite right now. It streams directly into my lightning node, which is three feet away from me. So it's, I custody it. It's mine. It's not going to square. It's not going to strike. It's mine. Nobody can tell me what to do with it. Once you give me your value in trade for my value, I keep the value that I've gotten. I don't sell it. I think that in the future, what's on my lightning node right now is going to be insanely valuable. So if you want to add to that little stack, please do. And I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.